All right, welcome back to another sci-fi episode where I can't wait to give you more information on how our brains and money work hand in hand or neuron to neuron. Let me tell you a little bit about this article that I read by Dr. Matt Johnson, how affective forecasting can influence your future self. So let me tell you a little bit about affective forecasting and what it has to do with money. We all tend to think as human beings that we know what it takes to be happy. And in many cases, we can have good predictive value of what will make us happy. However, when we start thinking of forecasting how we're going to feel because of a particular event or a particular thing that occurs or a particular thing that presents itself, then we tend to overpredict or underpredict what we're really going to feel. So we really are poor forecasters when it comes to predicting how we're going to feel. Now, Olivia, what does that have to do with money? Well, I have a lot of clients who talk about how money could make them happier, how more money could make them happier, or how a promotion could make them happier, or other things in their lives could make them happier. But when those things happen and those events do occur and you go back and you ask, are you happier? you'd be surprised at what they actually say. So this doctor, Dr. Matt Johnson, he's a PhD. He talks about research that is suggesting that people tend to visualize their future self. Again, predicting what life is going to be like for you as a completely different person and not as an older wiser version of themselves. What we do is we, we tend to become selfish with how we even project an image up in our mind's eye of, of what we look like. We're robbing ourselves. First, we don't age ourselves appropriately in that mental evaluation. And then we, we also do not show ourselves as wiser. We're not aging ourselves appropriately. And therefore, how can we predict our feelings if we're not able to forecast what those other attributes of our future selves would be? Another thing that he talks about is how we can make better financial decisions if we learned how to empathize with our future self. If we learned how to ascribe that older, wiser self and then start thinking, what behaviors do I need to tie to what I want to happen to actually make it happen? So not with the flimsy emotions, such as predicting happiness. I love how he kicks off the article by talking about what if we had the opportunity to receive free ice cream for 30 days nonstop every day. So one ice cream each day 
for 30 days nonstop. I'm sure you're thinking if you have kids, you're already thinking what I was thinking when I was reading this article, like, oh, this is this is not going to be good because, <laughs> you know, we all have a 10 year old inside of us as well. It doesn't matter how old you are. You tend to have this poor predictive quality about how a certain food item or a certain event is going to make you feel and then you actually have the food and then you feel horrible afterwards <laughs> or you attend the event and you feel horrible afterwards. So let's jump into the study. What they did is they provided this ice cream and they asked the participants to predict what their level of enjoyment for the ice cream would be each day. And the participants said, oh, well, our enjoyment would grow each day. And by the last day, on day 30, we would be in ice cream bliss. <laughs> Guess what happened? Participants at first were enthusiastic, but over time, the enjoyment began to wane and as they say, drift further away from how happy they thought they'd be. And they say even further, halfway through, the participants were begging to drop out of the study. And those who did make it to the end felt miserable. The idea of eating ice cream every day seems great, but the actual impact on our future state of happiness, not so much. I love that study. I'd never heard of this before. And I, I love how they put this into a great visualization for us. Because when we think in terms of our finances, we get caught up in the if onlys or the if thens. And I remember when I was in clinical therapy, providing clinical therapy to patients, we would talk about the tyranny of the shoulds, the if onlys, all these things that we get caught up in. So for example, if only I could get that promotion, then I'd be happier. If only I made more money, then I'd be happier. And maybe you've heard this one, or maybe this was you at one point in your life. If only I had a child, it would lend to a happier marriage. We all know that those are not the things that truly make us happy. Because guess what? When we receive a promotion, yeah, we're euphoric when we learn that we got the job, but then there's more responsibility. There's added stress, maybe even more work hours. And yeah, a little more money that comes with it. But then you start feeling like you're following a dangling carrot. And then your quality of life starts to go downhill. That's not true of all promotions. I Hey, I've been promoted over my lifetime, and I've been very happy with a lot of the outcomes of promotion. But that is not what made me happy, ultimately. It's about the enjoyment of the moment and being in the present. Those are the types of things that make people happy. And perhaps that's why mindfulness continues to be the gold star treatment for anxiety even today, where you're remaining in the moment. So instead of wishing life away and wishing that all the anxiety is gone, which is impossible, you start to enjoy 
the moments that are going well. And it's the same thing that we should do with our finances. Here's another thing they said with this ice cream research that they did. Some of this miscalculation with how they predicted that they would be happier or be caught up in an ice cream bliss by the 30th day, uh, the miscalculation is because the pleasure of ice cream, usually a once in a while treat, became predictable. And they call that pleasure habituation. And pleasure habituation is a powerful force. And that is a quote from their article. Pleasure habituation, let's think about that in terms of money. Let's replace ice cream with spending money. If we were, if I were to have some participants here today and say, hey, you're going to receive $500 every day to spend however you want it every day for over 30 days. Tell me how you think your life is going to be. Imagine all the respondents, and I'm sure you're thinking, Olivia, I would not get tired of that whatsoever. <laughs> Bring it on. I wouldn't have a bellyache over it. I wouldn't feel guilty about it. Would you now? So let's think about that. We already do that. Again, Team Redstone, we have a bunch of high-income earners. Most of us are spending $500 a day in a month without even blinking twice because we have car payments, we have mortgage payments, we have boat payments, we have ATV payments, we have everything you could ever want under the sun payments. So how are you feeling today? There's probably a reason you listen to these podcasts because you're wanting a little extra motivation or a little extra umph to follow through with your financial goals. So spending $500 a day does not necessarily have the best predictive value in making you feel happy. It's poor affective forecasting. Pleasure habituation. Spending money and eating ice cream both have dopaminergic qualities. And I've talked about that before in my podcast, especially with overspending. It's just like an addiction. When you are addicted to a substance or a thing, dopamine will run rampant in your brain like a volcano. And it's the pleasure and reward center of your brain. So that pleasure habituation, things just get old. Having that kind of money just gets old. And so then the pleasure starts to wane. And then you start to think, well, now if only I had more money. And that's a horrible wheel to get stuck in over and over again. I'm going to read a quote here from, from this article. This also comes down to the power of anticipation, wherein wanting is far better than having something. The brain engineers pleasure only in the chase. So our desire for something in the present is always far greater than our actual enjoyment of it will be in the future. Oh, I love that quote. And here's why I love that quote. The pursuit of money is far more rewarding than the actual end state of having that kind of money. 
And I know I have listeners who are thinking, well, Olivia, I sure would love to try. <laughs> Let me be a research participant and just give it a try and see what happens in my situation. But it's kind of like the chase. So when you first hear, I'm going to have ice cream every day for the next 30 days, unless you're lactose intolerant, of course, and then I would not be hitting the pleasure center of your brain. It'd probably be causing you a deeper level of anxiety, but you would have poor predictive value in, in even thinking about, oh my goodness, I'm not going to actually love this by day 10. So it's about the moving towards the goal rather than always the end state of the goal. So what should this tell us about goals? Here's what the doctor said in his research or his article. We don't naturally calibrate for this discrepancy. It makes us terrible predictors of what will make us happy. The same appears to be true for predicting the impact of negative events as well. Let's pause there for a moment and dig a little deeper here. So not only when it comes to affective forecasting, and affect is just a fancy clinical term for emotion or feeling. So whether it's happiness, sadness, fear, depression, joy, we have the ability to feel all emotions within the same day. As I've stated before, they are simply signals. So not only are we horrible at predicting what's going to make us happy, but we're also horrible in predicting about what's going to make us sad. And they call that impact bias. When, when an event or situation has, an, has occurred, we start to have this bias thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to horribly impact the rest of my life. For some of you that may have heard one of my podcasts, I talked about being in physical therapy for my back. Since then, I've actually had back surgery. I had a herniated disc and didn't even know it. Within five days of seeing the specialist, I was on the operating room table. And all kinds of thoughts flooded my mind. Oh my goodness, I'm only 43. I'm athletic. I'm healthy. What is this going to mean for me? I, I, was, um, I was hopeful but at the same time, I was doubtful that this was going to be the, the cure-all. Surely this isn't how this works. And, you know, you've read things about back surgery and those types of things. So I started to feel a little depressed by, while also simultaneously happy and euphoric that something different was going to happen. So my predictive value was incredibly horrible. <laughs> The predictive value that I had that it was going to be a bad situation or that it was going to impact the rest of my life in a horrible way was not so. Because the day of surgery, I got up and I walked and I was pain free. No more nerve issues, no more sciatic issues, nothing like that. It was instantaneous. So imagine the euphoria that I felt but also the wanting to do something different so that never happens again. Another experiment occurred because of this impact bias. This experiment 
happened by Dan Gilbert of Harvard University. He went ahead and studied and gathered data from people who had every reason to be unhappy. So people who were stood up at the altar, and I hope that never happened to you, but here's what, here's, and here I'm going to quote, at that moment, as expected, they're devastated with sadness. And when asked, they predict that their future self will be even worse off a year later. But many reported the event as being one of the best things that ever happened to them. So these findings come down to the fact that once we come to accept a situation, we then begin to synthesize our own happiness, a feature that tends to be lost in our loose connection with the future self. Okay, let me geek out for a second, you guys. This scientific research just brightens my day because number one, it uses the terminology synthetic happiness. You know, you read articles, you hear different podcasts on genuine happiness. That's a misnomer. And let me tell you why. Because happiness is an emotion and emotions are fleeting. Okay, you might be happy one second and then something happens and you're sad crying within the next five minutes. Okay, happiness is not something that is going to last a lifetime but we have moments of it and that's what we strive for. And that's a good thing. But when we are tired and, and we're, we're um, absolutely overwhelmed by not finding what we're looking for, remember that you can synthesize and create your own happiness. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? And acceptance was a huge part of that. And that's part of that mindfulness practice that's, that is so that works so well with um, anxiety disorders. Our future selves, as they state, can often feel like a completely different person. So how do we get over that? So not only are we horrible at predicting what we're going to feel like in the future, again, the clinical term being affective forecasting, we're also very bad at linking our true future selves with each other. When we think about our future self, it's like as if we're a completely different person and we fail to make a connection that it is us, that it's me, that I can be that person, but what's the next step in making me that person that I'm wanting to be? Understanding how we can impact our happiness in our future selves, one way of doing that is through social cognition. In the last decade, and I'm, I'm reading a quote here, we've come to understand the intricate ways our brains integrate social cues to seamlessly build models of other people's minds. The, so the research here suggests that we employ a similar neural mechanism for thinking about our future selves as we do for thinking about other people. When we think about our future selves, many times we're not putting the social cues in context in proximation with who we are 
as individuals. And I know that sounds like a bunch of clinical jargon. I apologize. So let me break it down for you here a little bit as um, the good doctor does in his article. He's talking about how the face app craze that occurred in 2019, how there were a lot of ethical implications with that, but a lot of good stuff that came out of that, it had an unexpected benefit with financial planning. He says a 2020 study found that when students were shown an artificially aged image of themselves, it motivated them to prepare better for their long-term financial futures. And the reason for that is when you see a true picture of what you're going to look like in the future, you have an empathy for self. There's this level of self-compassion that you build. And I can only imagine what the respondents in this study were thinking. Whoa, I'm old, I'm frail, I'm vulnerable. So while I'm youthful and strong and have a steady income, here's what I need to do to protect myself that I see right there. What a great way to help yourself save for the future. And really, that's what this article is all about. I didn't read to you the uh, subtitle of this article, but it is about how empathy for your future self will help you with financial planning. Like I mentioned with my back surgery, this is helping me empathize with my future self because now I'm thinking I'm not going to be doing these high intensity interval training workouts anymore. I'm not going to be going on those long runs anymore. I need to be kinder to my joints. I'm going to continue to be good to my body and my brain and, and everything else by continuing to exercise but I'm not going to go as heavy and as fast and as explosive as I used to be. We can do the same when it comes to spending. We can spend and we have to keep spending, but we need to be kinder to our bank and our retirement accounts. Let's talk a little bit about social cues before we end here. We are constantly watching what other people are doing. And likewise, people are constantly watching what we're doing. So the way that we learn how to do things is like when you're a baby and you fall, you look to your parents immediately to see, should I be scared or upset that I just fell? If your parent is laughing and clapping because you fell, that baby is not likely to cry. That baby is likely to get up and keep going and be excited about another opportunity to learn how to walk or whatever they were doing at that time. It's the same with finances. We're going to fall every once in a while. We're going to make mistakes with our money every once in a while. But who are you looking to for those social cues? Are you just sitting there paralyzed and doing nothing? Or do you see someone who is showing you and guiding you that this is not the end and there's more that you can do to keep carrying on? That's what I'll leave you with today. Remember that you cannot effectively predict how you're going to feel about situations. So why not just enjoy the moments as they are? Doesn't mean you shouldn't set goals for yourself. 
but try not to be too hard on yourselves when you don't reach that high that you expected. Financial Symposium, March 9th. The information is in this podcast post. This is a great way to learn social cues from financial experts, the people that are going to cheer you on and clap you forward to doing good things with your money.